So you probably noticed our wasp friend is back today. So if I make sudden movements, don't, don't worry about that at all. Um, but good to see you today. Glad you're here. A uh, couple things. First of all, thank you so much for your, your very gracious gifts to myself and Pastor Molly last week. They were very much appreciated. The cards were amazing, all the kind words and, and the notes that everybody took the time to write. Uh, for the record, most of the chocolate is gone, but thank you for that. That was good. Uh, the tea is set out, and I haven't had it yet. I'm kind of waiting until Alicia gets back on that one, but more on her in a second. Uh, the socks, I actually meant to wear a pair of them today, but then I forgot to take them home yesterday, so they're still in my office. So maybe next Sabbath I'll wear some of the socks. And then that cool light-up thing, most of you probably don't know what all these things were, but there was this really neat thing that sits on a stand and a light shines on it, and it, and it has these words about being a pastor, which I have to say is really more my aspirational goals than my reality when you look at that. I, I wish I was the person described on that. But anyway, thank you for all those things. Uh, they're amazing, and I, for one, feel appreciated at the close of Pastor Appreciation Month. And that, Molly, did you feel appreciated? Yes, Molly did as well. All right, so we're good. We feel appreciated for another year, so everybody can just relax. We're good for now. All right, so a little update on family news, because you know crazy things have been going on in, in our family. Nathan is back home, and all is well. He's fine. He's healing up from everything. He got through his complications, and everything's good there. Alicia, my wife Alicia, is actually in Tennessee this weekend. Uh, she is making her way back. She's driving back, and uh, but by route of Dallas. She's going to visit her mom who lives in the Dallas area. So she'll be home later in the week. And the reason I mention all this is because she's scheduled to be our speaker next Sabbath. So she has to be home by Friday at the latest. And she is going to, on that day relate to you the most remarkable experience that we had when our son Nathan was 14 years old. So, so that is, and, and what she was doing out there, uh, it's kind of related to that story. So you'll want to be here next Sabbath to hear that because it is a pretty remarkable story of God's work in our life. Uh, one other thing, great job to the Vista Ridge Academy staff and particularly Ryan and Brittany who did a crazy amount of work to get the whole fall festival thing to happen last weekend. And then most of you who all showed up as volunteers, Ryan is a brilliant recruiter without question. Um, and, uh, but thanks for being there for an amazing event. I think there were close to 400 people that came through the event, uh, which is wonderful and it was fun. And I don't have details on how much money was raised and all, but a very good event and glad to be a part of it and thanks to our our different leaders who made that happen so very good uh you'll probably hear an announcement on this later but there's another event at vista ridge this evening and that's the constituency meeting so all of us that are members here are a part of that constituency are invited to be at that meeting where we'll officially vote a couple things related to the school and and things like that so it's an event we need to have every year that's it it, there's a Vespers at 6, and then it starts right after that. So I uh, encourage you to be a part of that. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day, for this chance to be here, uh, for the way your spirit leads us. Now, Lord, I pray that you will give us discerning eyes, that we will see, we will see the history of the world in the way you want us to see it. In Jesus' name, amen. So my title today might be a little intimidating, The History of the World, and it may cause you to fear that we might be here all day long, but don't worry, I should easily be done by two, so no problem at all. Gives us plenty of time to get home and still make it to the meeting at Vista Ridge at six, so it should be fine. Uh, no, we won't be that long, but I do encourage you to get snacks. Don't be afraid to have something with you, because uh, uh, it's a little heavy. And, and to that end, precision is a little more important today than some other days. So I will be a little more tied to exactly what I've got written here because I don't want to say it wrong. And I don't want you to misunderstand. So, so that's a little context here. But before we jump into this, we need a definition of terms. 
I will not today be recounting all the impactful events of history, for that, of course, would be impossible. In fact, from the standpoint of what we normally call history, I will, in fact, be leaving most of it out. For I'm not so much interested today in recounting all the events that greatly impacted the present reality of the human condition, but rather, based on one particular Old Testament prophecy, I hope to reveal to you a history based not on the kingdoms of this world so much as on the kingdom that is not of this world. And that history reads a little differently. So when I say history of the world, I don't mean a recounting of the legion of events that powerfully and often devastatingly impacted the people who experienced those events, and by extension, all who came after. Maybe for our purpose today, we could call that the history of the human experience. But where I want to dwell today is the history of God's eternal purpose and how an understanding of the history of God's eternal purpose will necessarily impact our perspective on the history of the human experience. We're building upon last Sabbath where we were reflecting on, on current events and how they might or might not play into the coming of the end of all things, and particularly the recent events involving Israel. Does that indicate any new information about the end of all things? Do you remember what I said last week? I said, no, it does not indicate that we are any closer to the end of all things. And do you remember why I said that? I said it for this reason. After Jesus, everything changes. And we know the story of Jesus and the reality of what he accomplished. We can no longer read the Bible the way we did before. And therefore, all the Old Testament prophecies that mention specific realities about Israel that seem to have not been fulfilled must now be reinterpreted as either fulfilled in Jesus himself or fulfilled spiritually and figuratively by the kingdom of God that Jesus first announced was at hand and then inaugurated with his life, death, and resurrection. So we can no longer read those literally. But now, before we actually get to the key prophecy that we will unpack today, let me give you this, my version of the eternal history of the world, including all the events of eternal significance. Now, this is not to say I'm including all the events of significance to those who experienced them. Rather, I am saying that all these events that so powerfully impact us, besides the ones I'm about to mention, are only temporarily relevant. But the three events I am about to list, two past, one future, are the events that are eternally significant. And it is interesting to note that in all three events, they are acts that God accomplishes on his own. So what are the three events? Creation, salvation, second coming. Those are the three eternally significant events. Creation. Without creation, none of it happens at all. Salvation. Without salvation, we're trapped in a dead-end reality that ends in destruction. Second coming. Without second coming, the end never arrives, and this whole period of of disaster for the human experience has no end. These are the three events of eternal significance in the history of the world. Now we could break those down into many pieces, but let's keep it simple for now. Those are the big three. And all three we receive and believe in by faith, since none of us were actually there for the first two, were we? 
We weren't there at creation. And as far as salvation, we weren't there in the days of Jesus. But don't fool yourself into thinking if you'd been there in the days of Jesus, you would have believed in him. Because there were lots of people there in the days of Jesus who didn't believe in him. Even then, you had to believe it by faith. And the third one, second coming, I think when that happens, it won't be so much believing it by faith. But it hasn't come yet. So until it does, we believe it by faith. So then with this in mind, let's look at what I believe to be the framing prophecy giving an increasingly broad brush picture of how events in the history of the human experience intersect with God's eternal purpose. It is my thesis that this prophecy provides the frame into which all later biblical prophecy must fit and explains with a telescoped view how eternal history will unfold in the context of the human experience. Now one irony in it all, it seems the one to whom this prophecy was initially given and the one who gave the basic interpretation were themselves incapable of fully understanding what the vision meant because they lived before Jesus. And before Jesus, no one could ever fully understand. But you are different. You live after Jesus, and you can, and you need to understand this prophecy. I'm talking about Daniel chapter 2. So we're going to go to Daniel chapter 2 today. You can take one of those Bibles that's in front of you or we'll have it on the screen here. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we find these words. I'm going to read a pretty good section here. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and that's actually an interesting point here, all of the Bible to this point has been written in Hebrew, and then it says in Aramaic, and then this whole section in Daniel is going to be written in Aramaic, but that's a related language to Hebrew. Anyway, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Because that's normally how you did it. The king said, I had a dream. Here's what I dreamed. And they said, ah, oh, here's what that means. Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Wise man was a bit of a dangerous occupation sometimes. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So now they're not really believing this is actually what he's requiring. So verse 7, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can tell me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magicians or enchanters or Chaldeans. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. Now, I'm not great at Hebrew. If I was, I'd have gone and looked that up, because that's probably kind of funny that... It's not enough to just say he was angry. He was also very furious. So he's obviously over the top here. And commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. 
So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok. There we go. Here's, here's two words again describing it. Prudence and discretion to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. All right, a couple points here. It's fascinating to me that first, this vision that is going to detail God's working, his eternal purpose in the context of the human experience, is given to a pagan king. Second interesting point, for reasons of either he forgot the dream or that he truly believed that the only one who could actually tell him the interpretation was someone who could also tell him what the dream was, this reality guaranteed that the only person who could give this pagan king the interpretation is the one God chose to give it to him. If he had told the dream to the rest of the Chaldeans, they'd have come up with something. But it wouldn't have been the right thing. So by him making this demand, he guarantees that Daniel is the only one who can give this interpretation. And third, that this critical framing prophecy is given in story form, which I believe suggests that all of God's eternal purposes happen in the context of the human experience, but they also transcend that context every time. So we can't ignore the human experience because it's part of the story, but neither can we come to believe that experience is the whole of the story. It's just the context in which the story happens. Now, for time's sake, I'll summarize the next section. Daniel goes home. He calls his friends. Together they pray for God to reveal to them the dream and its interpretation, which God, in fact, does with Daniel. And then they give thanks to God for revealing the mystery. Then Daniel goes back to Ariak, says he knows the dream and the interpretation, and says, take me to Nebuchadnezzar. So we pick up again in verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, they gave him that name in Babylon, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. So the whole pretext of all of this is Nebuchadnezzar laying in his bed wondering what will become of his empire. And it is in that context that God came to him, and it says, And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than any other, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So it's extremely tempting to stop here on several interesting points, but for time's sake, let's keep rolling. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you look, a stone was cut without hands and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there you have it. The history of the world. Or at that point, the future of the world, or at least the future of the world from the standpoint of God's eternal purpose as told from a Babylonian start point with decreasing precision as one moves through time. So, any questions? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had some. So Daniel continues. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, now catch this next line, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And into whose hand he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. All right, let's break this down. Because indeed, this is how it happened. Now, before I do, let me add this comment. Nebuchadnezzar was not the only great king on the earth at the time. There was China who had its thing going on. There was stuff in the Americas going on. There were, there were great kings in the world. So, so Nebuchadnezzar was not the only one at this point, but he was the one king on earth at the time whose actions were playing into God's eternal purpose. There were other kings, there were other things, but they were not playing into God's eternal purpose at that point. Therefore, they are irrelevant to the story. And the same would be true for each of the next three kingdoms, each of which would unknowingly do God's will, even as in many ways they were also often evil and decadent and the cause of much human suffering. But that is part of the point. That was their impact on the human experience, which is what we live out in our lives. But almost all of what they are famous for in this day is irrelevant in the eternal sense. Yet each of them unwittingly contributed to God's purpose. So what role did Babylon play in God's purpose? Well, this is a tough one. You see, Babylon saved Judah by destroying it. And in Babylon, God preserved the best of the best of the land, Daniel and Ezekiel being examples, for a fresh restart in order to preserve the witness so that Jesus could be identified when he arrived, the salvation event. It happened because Judah had become so corrupt, the eternal purpose was endangered. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skilled magician and the expert in charms. All of the ones on this list of value were taken by the Babylonians out of Judah and Jerusalem to Babylon. So just as the prophecy says, the Lord is taking them away. In verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord 
defying his glorious presence. So, so here's what we have to come to terms with. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar were God's idea. You don't like that? Well, listen to this. Jeremiah 27, verse 4. Give them this charge for their masters. This is Jeremiah talking to the representatives of, of all the other little nations around. You've got Judah, you've got, uh, you've got the Edomites, you've got the Ammonites, all these others. They're all gathered around. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arms have made the earth. So he's, he's appealing. His authority is based on the reality of that first eternally relevant event, creation. So he said, I, the one who created the world, am about to give you a message with the men and animals that are on the earth. And here's what he says. And I give it, his creation, to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. That's how he identifies him. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson. And that's exactly how it happened. It was in the time of the grandson that the kingdom would fall. Until the time of his own land comes, then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. So, this is God's idea. This is part of his eternal purpose. He has destroyed Judah to save it. Troubling, but true. He's taken from the land everybody that can become the seed of the restart. He's put them in safekeeping in Babylon. Now, Jeremiah 29 what were these exiles supposed to do while they're in Babylon? Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, note what he says, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar didn't take them into exile. God sent them into exile. Here's his word to them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare will be your welfare you wonder why you pray for your country its welfare will be your welfare pray for it for thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Because you see, all these so-called prophets were saying, we'll be going back immediately, we'll be going back immediately. But Jeremiah says, no, God did this, live there, trust his plan. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And now here's a text you know, but I bet you don't know it in the context. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That's the context of that passage that we like to quote when we're trying to trust the Lord with our lives and these things. And it's appropriate. We do quote it in that context. But we do have to trust him, even when it doesn't make sense. So the Babylonian Empire rose from the ruins of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire are the ones that destroyed the northern tribes of Israel, deported them, and they disappeared and never came back. 
And the Babylonian Empire enjoyed a golden age under Nebuchadnezzar, but it would fall in 539 BC to a coalition of Medes and Persians. Babylon was the head of gold and ironically preserved Judah by destroying it. But we go back to Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 32. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. All right, Babylon was the head of gold. The Medes and the Persians were the chest and arms of silver. So how was this next kingdom key to God's purpose? Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 24. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. All right, again, you see this reference to God as creator. This is his basis for action. He's pointing back to that first event of eternal significance. So we jump to verse 26. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Now catch this, verse 28 who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. This prophecy is so profound. This is Isaiah writing 200 years before these events. This is so profound, calling Cyrus by name, that most modern scholars have refused to believe these words were truly spoken 200 years before they occurred. To call him by name seems like too much of a stretch. Now you can decide for yourself what you think on that, but if I'm going to buy into the notion that God created the world, I'm not going to have a problem with him knowing somebody's name 200 years before they're born. That's me. Figure out how you feel about it. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Now catch this. This is almost unbelievable. Thus says the Lord. And here this is Yahweh. This is the name of God. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. Now stop right there for a second. What is the word for anointed? Messiah. Thus says Yahweh to his Messiah, Cyrus. Crazy. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. So what did God call Cyrus by name to do? Second Chronicles, verse 36, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and that's Yahweh, stirred up the spirit, of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go. So here's what happened. Babylon saved Judah and God's purpose by destroying Judah. And the Persians saved God's purpose by sending the people back to start again. Now they did lots of other stuff. But that was the eternally significant thing. Now, 
Another thing Persia did was it united, it united all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. United it into a, single, into a single kingdom, and everybody got this mentality that they were all a part of the same thing. And this will become relevant as we go forward. So who's next? The middle and the thighs of bronze. The Persians, would become, who would become dominant over the Medes over time, would themselves fall to the Greeks, or more accurately, the Macedonians under Alexander the Great around the year 331 B.C. And with this era, we don't have any texts from the Bible to affirm this was part of God's eternal purpose because this takes place in the intertestamental time between Malachi and Matthew. There's nothing in there that we call Bible that references this time. But if you would let me, I think we can by inference see why the Greeks were so key to the ultimate plan. And here's the reason. The Greeks were in love with their culture. And they loved to spread both their culture and their language everywhere they went. And this would become later an issue in Judah where some were embracing the Greek ways. And let's just acknowledge, not all of that was positive. And thus earning the name Hellenized, which was a derogatory title akin to being unfaithful. It is interesting to note that the stress, one of the first stresses that occurs in the Christian church that's talked about in Acts chapter 6, and it's the point where the deacons are appointed, is related to conflict between the Hellenized Jewish believers in Jesus and the Orthodox Jewish believers in Jesus. That's the first conflict in the church. So this Hellenization process, the Greeks bringing their culture and bringing their language, was a very powerful influence. And herein lies the part, I believe, that the Greeks played in God's plan. They gave everyone in the region a common language to speak. Now, everyone hung on to their original language. The Jews continued to speak Aramaic. That's the form of Hebrew they spoke in the days of Jesus. But many, if not most of them, could also speak some Greek. Not unlike the way that you can pretty much get by pretty much anywhere in the world with English. There's almost always somebody who can speak it or help you, and it's shocking how often you will also get that as an alternate when you're looking at signs. This establishing in that era of a lingua franca, you see France once played a role like this in Europe, and the French language was the one that, that was available to everyone, and that gives us that term would prove key to the spreading of the gospel and, and Christianity, escaping the notion that it was a regional faith. Up until this time, basically every faith stayed put where it was. Gods were from a certain location, and you worshipped them in that location. But one of the effects of the Greek culture and the spreading of the Greek language was when Christianity broke loose from Judaism, when it when the center of mission moved from Jerusalem to Antioch, suddenly it became accessible to people who weren't Jews and who lived anywhere because what was being proclaimed was a faith that was not tied to a location or a God of a location. It was tied to the one whose kingdom was not of this world. And the power that created the context for that to happen was Greece. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. That is an ethnic language tied to a location. The New Testament is written in Greek. And that was a language that was not tied to any location. Alexander's empire would break into four parts and slowly fall apart, subsumed in the empire, described in the images made of iron, which was Rome. So what did Rome do to further God's purpose? Well, you ever heard this one? Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the head of Rome, that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Rome is the reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem. There it is. God's purpose. And an interesting note here that makes the point between events that are key to God's eternal purpose and events that greatly impact the human condition, Caesar Augustus made many decrees that seemingly impacted more people more powerfully than this one, but he unwittingly made this one, which was his only eternally relevant action in his whole time. Of course, he died not knowing he had been central to the plan. So key note here. The accomplishing of God's eternal purposes are not always obvious when they occur, or to those who are doing it. This is why faith is so important and why we need to continue to trust even when we don't understand. If we got carted off to Babylon, we'd be sure that we were under God's curse. But the truth is they were under God's blessing. So we've got to have faith in the plan even when we don't know it. Well, what else did Rome do? Well, have you ever heard of the Pax Romana? It's the peace of Rome. And I say that term, it's relative peace. Um, but basically, Rome was powerful enough that the entire Mediterranean region was under its control. And because of the singularity in the control, there was not trouble moving from place to place throughout this whole region. And this is the reason Paul could get on a ship and go to Cyprus and then take that ship up to what we call Asia Minor, the, the, where Turkey is today, and that the Christian church would really take off and become what it was to become in this region that the Persians had united and now the Romans made peaceful. And they did another thing. They built roads all over. And guess who walked on those roads? Paul and all the other people who were spreading the story of Jesus. And something else they did. I doubt Jesus would have survived three and a half years if it wasn't for the Romans being there. Because they were a check on the Jews. And if it wasn't for the Romans, well, and it was the Romans who saved Paul from the Jews and then basically kept him in protective custody for multiple years, also known as in prison, giving him the chance to write several critically important New Testament books. And it was Rome who gave Paul the armed escort to Rome itself. I mean, as a prisoner, but you know, details, right? He got there safe. All four of these empires were key to God's eternal purpose, and each of them played their role mostly without knowing they'd done it. But remember now, after Jesus, everything changes, and once his kingdom, the kingdom that is not of this world, had been established. The role of the empires and kingdoms, whoa, look out. The roles of the empires and kingdoms of the world in God's eternal purpose becomes a lot murkier. There are other prophecies, particularly some in Revelation, that suggest roles for other nations. But this is not clear in the Daniel 2 prophecy. Instead, everything after is described as iron and clay, weak and strong, never completely mixing and never completely at peace. Which is exactly what Jesus says would happen. Like we read last Sabbath, Matthew 24, verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. 
And it was into that category that I placed the current conflict in Israel. Hugely significant in the context of the human condition, but not necessarily relevant to God's eternal purpose, except in that some who encountered the crisis might find faith through it. But we need to get to the end of the vision, the part that truly matters most, the stone. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Not eternally significant. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, a couple things here. The stone is cut without human hands, meaning that this is an event that humans do not dictate, determine, or decide upon. It is God acting again, just like he did at creation, just like Jesus did at salvation. It is the moment when Jesus comes again and puts an end to all human history that is not eternally significant, which is pretty much all of it. Daniel chapter 2, verse 43. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So who is the stone cut without human hands? And that finally takes us to our text for the day, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of these people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy. We cannot let ourselves get caught in the madness of our time. Don't get caught in it. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. We're not supposed to be afraid, we're not supposed to be in dread, and we're not supposed to buy into every craziness that comes along. But here's what we do, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling for both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see, Jesus is the rock upon whom we build our faith. And the reason why we don't have to be afraid of every conspiracy and rumor of war and crazy reality of the human experience, for none of it is eternal. And all will be crushed and blown away when Jesus comes again. Now that is not to say that things will not greatly impact our human experience. In fact, they will. But our kingdom is not of this world. And like the prophets and believers of old, we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. So now the band, you can come back up here. We're almost done. If not everything that seems to matter truly matters, what should we do? What are the implications? Well, how about this? 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice, that's inherent unkindness to one another, and all deceit, that's lying to each other, and all hypocrisy, that's acting one way when we really are another way, and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, 
Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now catch this part. As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What did the stone that came and crushed the image do? It grew to fill the world. Well, you're part of that. You are being built into this, founded on Jesus, built into this spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, not Levites, something else. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold I am laying in Zion a stone. Not Zion as in the geographical location of Jerusalem. Zion as in the kingdom of God. A cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, not an ethnicity, because we're from all of them, but together have become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, not Levites, a holy nation, not America, something else a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here's how we end. Now you know the history of the world, or at least a portion of it as it relates to God's eternal purpose. I pray that this knowledge gives you courage and endurance to enable you to faithfully live through the pains, the sorrows, and the hardships of the human condition. Remember this key note. The accomplishing of God's eternal purposes are not always obvious when they occur. They're not always obvious. And they're not always obvious to the ones who are doing it. You may be accomplishing God's purpose right now and you don't even know it. This is why faith is so important and why we need to continue to trust even when we do not fully understand. And the hardest times to fully understand is when the human experience is tough. But it is in those moments of crisis, if we can gain this eternal perspective, we can say, blessed be your name. Even when we don't understand. Even when our road is hard. Blessed be your name. God's eternal purpose will stand and his kingdom will fill the earth.